This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer. And I'm Stephen Ray Morris. Hosts of the Purrcast. That's Purr with three R's. It's a podcast all about cats. We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love them. Each episode, we invite a fellow feline lover, comedians, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends. Tune in to The Purrcast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to The Purrcast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Right meow. Please note that these episodes discuss medical procedures, notes, and decisions made by professional providers. We aren't experts in these fields and don't have information beyond the notes. This is The Fall Line. The thing I found over there was that there's there's a palpable sense of 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 loss there, but also of history, and everything was so closed off there to the general public. Even in broad daylight, the insides of those buildings are so dark. A lot of times, you have to carry a flashlight around, and uh, so you would get some sun coming in through the windows. There's so much history in there still. I mean, I'm talking. They had patient dresses still in there. They, um, the patient's names were still on the walls. Imagine a liberal arts college left to decay. Sweeping red brick buildings, braced by columns, each named after a wealthy philanthropist. There are windows, but up high, along the upper floors. They are barred and their glass is broken. Inside, the paint is peeling so that the rooms look like they're coated in thousands of fluffy white wood shavings. Mold has spread across the wood and the plaster, and light streams in through the damaged ceilings, catching forgotten curtains, stray medical supplies, and abandoned files. Once housing several thousand people over 181 acres, The Bull Street campus has sat quiet in Richland County for over 20 years, the city of Columbia growing up and out around it. That's where the story begins. The story of a living Jane Doe, the Richland County Jane Doe, a woman unable to identify herself who died before anyone could learn her name. She was at Bull Street for less than two days in 1982. How long she'd been in the city, in Columbia, We don't know. If she was from there, no one ever claimed her as family. No one ever offered up a name. Columbia is the capital city of South Carolina. It started out as a plantation home built up on Congaree lands, but a city was established because frequent trips to the low country were impractical. Columbia is now home to the University of South Carolina and the Gamecocks, whose rivalry with the Clemson University Tigers is one of the most passionate in the Southeast. People outside the Palmetto State might be more familiar with Charleston, even Myrtle Beach, but those cities have a distinct flavor that translates well to television. 
Columbia and Charleston are equal in population, but it's because it's become more retirement location than tourist destination. That said, Columbia has its own distinctions. It was the first planned city in South Carolina and the second planned city in the country. General Sherman burned most of Columbia before he ever made it to Atlanta. And it was home to the second oldest mental institution in the United States, the South Carolina State Mental Hospital, originally called the, quote, South Carolina Lunatic Asylum. According to William Buckite, he's the author of The South Carolina State Mental Hospital, Stories from Bull Street. The first patient was admitted in 1828. The hospital would eventually serve several thousand patients at a time. The hospital's name was changed, but many locals called and still call it Bull Street. When the Richland County Jane Doe was there in 1982, the hospital was already in decline, firmly into the progression of the deinstitutionalization movement that began in the 1970s and reached its height in the Reagan era. Today, the state hospital stands empty, moldering buildings as large as 350,000 square feet, wings spreading out back into wards that look like dorms for Ivy League students. This isn't an accident. According to the website Digitizing Bull Street, 19th century reform had changed social views of mental health treatment. Moving from custodial models toward actual treatment meant re-envisioning just about everything, including architecture. The design of the buildings and grounds was thought to have an effect on personality, mood, and behavior. A building should be, quote, purpose-built if it was to aid in, quote, curing patients. And that was the end game of the social reformers of the 19th century mental health sphere, sending patients home, quote, healed. So the state hospital on Bull Street was built in the style of the new European hospitals. It had a grassy campus, and its first building, Williams, was Greco-Revival in style. It was designed with single-occupant rooms along the south side. Per digitizing Bull Street, quote, not only did the building's design comply with standards for moral treatment, it also projected a grand image of a state institution that was recognizable to the upper-class money the asylum hoped to attract. By the mid-19th century, there were two buildings to house patients, but eventually, there'd be more than a dozen structures, including a laundry, an auditorium, a library, a bakery, a chapel. It was a town inside of a city where some patients would live for decades. That wasn't unique to Bull Street, but the scope of the campus can seem incredible today. No, it was abs- it was uh, commonplace, very standard, especially uh, in the early, well, in the 1950s, going back a little further. These state hospitals were huge campuses, you know, a lot of times at least 200 acres, and they functioned as self-sustaining communities. Um, a lot of them raised their own cattle even. They had sla- their own slaughterhouses. They had their own laundries. They had their own hospitals for any kind of physical um, problem a patient might have. Uh, they even had their own forensics wards. Um it was unbelievable. Patients didn't really ever have to leave the campus. William Buckeye has worked as a journalist in South Carolina for two decades. He hasn't covered the Richland County Jane Doe. 
He hadn't heard of her case before we contacted him, but when it comes to the state hospital, he knows just about everything. Before he authored a book on the hospital, he wrote a number of articles for the Greenville News. He's won numerous press association awards and, in 2011, was named Reporter of the Year by the South Carolina chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Health. Before that, he was a fascinated observer and photographer who explored the abandoned Bull Street campus and recorded his trips via camera. Eventually, he became a citizen historian. We spoke this spring, and he described the design of the campus and his fascination with the buildings. Around the time the South Carolina State Hospital was built, it was one of the innovators as far as architectural design went. See, around the time of the Civil War, there was an architect named Thomas Kirkbride. And Thomas Kirkbride began uh, designing state hospitals on an architectural plan they later called the Kirkbride Plan. Now, the Kirkbride Plan had, he would build almost a castle-like administration building on at the dead center of the hospital. And then he'd have wings that went out almost like like bats to each like bat wings to each side and the women would be on one side the men on the other um and there were other things taken into consideration um especially sunlight and air filtering through the hospital and the further the the wings got away from the administration building usually the sicker the patients got when you look at photos of the hospital as it is now it's difficult to imagine it running and functional. Though, through the latter part of the 20th century, there would have been numerous activity directors, dozens of nurses' aides who were called mental health specialists, custodial staff, groundskeepers, food service workers, and a smaller number of RNs and doctors. Nurses directed the buildings, and care and patient chart updates would have largely been the responsibility of aides. Depending on the patient, there would have been socializing in community rooms, walks on the grounds, even a vegetable garden to tend, and trips into town with patients and providers, to fairs or parks, or even to go fishing. How smoothly these programs ran depended on a number of factors. And as a state hospital, there was never enough budget or enough staff or enough of anything. Though William Buckeye tracked down several longtime employees, it proved difficult to find many who'd stayed there through their careers. Turnover was generally high. Nurses could make more money in private hospitals and aides in less physically demanding jobs with shorter hours. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, budgets were further slashed, meaning that some of the best services of Bull Street and many of its workers disappeared. When the Richland County Jane Doe arrived in 1982, it was, as William Buckite wrote, a tumultuous time. Some listeners may not be familiar with the deinstitutionalization movement, but you've lived with the results all your life. The process and intentions and their effects are both complex and widespread. Per PBS, quote, Deinstitutionalization is the name given to the policy of moving severely mentally ill people out of large state institutions and then closing part or all of those institutions. It's been a major contributing factor to the mental illness crisis, end quote. 
The crisis part? That wasn't necessarily foreseen. The original plan was community-based treatment centers like group homes or outpatient care, and a shift away from long-term institutionalization. Those plans began with the 1946 establishment of the National Institute on Mental Health and its research into new treatment models. Until the 1955 introduction of Thorazine, which PBS calls the, quote, first effective antipsychotic medication, long-term or permanent stays in mental health facilities were common. Later, more individualized medications were developed to address aspects of depression, bipolar, and schizophrenia. That marked a major shift in mental health care, both in the U.S. and abroad. So there's new medication, and there's an increasingly negative public image of mental health institutions. Some consider the 1975 movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as a popular influence on that shift. There was the introduction of Medicare and Medicaid in the 50s, and then the published findings of the NIMH that, quote, recommended that community health centers be set up to treat those with less severe mental illnesses. A 1961 act signed by President Kennedy established thousands of community-based centers that were focused on, quote, integration back into society and moving patients closer to their families. But back to their region of origin might be a better way to explain that because there were people at state hospitals who didn't have families or relationships with their relatives. In the same decade, laws limiting involuntary commitment were also introduced, meaning that families could less easily force a relative into state care. That would prevent plenty of abuses. But according to PBS, it also brought about a flood of people with mental illness into the justice and prison systems. It all culminated in the 1970s and 1980s when state hospitals began to close and some patients moved to community centers, were stabilized through use of medication, and then, quote, reintegrated into their local communities. But for other patients, it wasn't so simple. Critics of the movement point out that released patients were left without continued support. Outpatient services and federal aid did not close all the gaps in need, with, as William Buckeye told us in an interview, some patients forced to choose between medicine and rent. Thousands of former state patients ended up on the streets, joining the homeless and home insecure populations of American cities, often jailed on minor charges and statistically more likely to be the victims of crime. A former mental health specialist that William Buckeye interviewed and whom you'll hear more from in this series remembered those effects. In her retirement, she lived near the now closed Bull Street grounds. Often, she would see former patients on the streets in crisis, homeless, experiencing symptoms. Some of them still remembered her. And that experience isn't unique to South Carolina. A study done in Ohio in 1988 found that 36% of their deinstitutionalized patients were homeless within six months. In 1982, the hospital was in what William Buckeye told us was a transitional phase, probably housing about a thousand patients, which is far under capacity. Patients were being moved, wards were closing, staff was being redistributed. So, Back to the Richland County Jane Doe. On February 14th, 1982, at about 4.25 a.m., 
a woman was brought into Richland County Memorial Hospital's emergency room. She was escorted by local law enforcement who had reportedly found her, quote, preaching in the street. She was noted as a possible danger to herself or others, but there's no actual violence included in the summary. That may have meant that she was wandering in the street or, in their observation, seemed unable to care for herself. It's not clear, though, if she was actually a danger or maybe just a disturbance. Though home insecurity was rising in 1982, we haven't found a good count for how many people were experiencing the issue in Richland County, South Carolina. And to the officers, she might not have seemed home insecure at all. How they perceived her could have affected their decision to leave her on the street, take her to the hospital, or even take her to jail. She had been out very late or early, depending on how you look at it, and was possibly causing a level of disturbance. Did someone call the police about her or was she spotted during a routine patrol? We don't have the initial police report, but we do have pictures of the Richland County Jane Doe and the last 48 hours of her life. And we also have the reports that came after. The surviving picture of the Richland County Jane Doe was damaged and it bears some bright yellow spots that obscure parts of her face. Forensic artists have since remedied that by editing the photo and we'll share both versions with you on social media. The Richland County Jane Doe was a white woman with extensive dental work, straight teeth, fillings, and no cavities. And she was somewhere between 38 and 50 years old. She had plucked eyebrows, dark hair that had been maintained in the recent past, with some gray coming in at the roots. She had high cheekbones, deep-set blue eyes, and a kind of sunken look. Lack of food, maybe, but at 5 feet and 133 pounds, she wasn't underweight. There aren't records of what she was wearing at the time she was picked up by law enforcement. The picture we have of her from her later admittance to the state hospital it doesn't show much, just a dark collar with some white underneath. She could have been wearing state-issued clothing or what she was picked up in. Once she arrived at the Richland County Emergency Room, a written record began and were able to combine both the initial notations of the county hospital staff and those later of the psychiatric team at Bull Street. On the emergency room forms, it's noted that she did not give them a name, but she did give her age as 38. Although in the 1990s, forensic anthropologist Ted Rathbun would estimate her as between 38 and 50, and most likely in the upper portion of that range. When we visited the Richland County Coroner's Office this spring, we spoke at length with Deputy Coroner Bill Stevens, who's working on the Richland County Jane Doe's case. We were connected with Bill via a forensic genealogist. It's thanks to Bill that we have access to extensive records and information about the Richland County Jane Doe's hospital stays. In addition to being a deputy coroner, Bill is a forensic anthropologist who actually studied under Ted Rathbun, a name we've run into multiple times on different cases. In the 1990s, Rathbun was perhaps the most respected forensic anthropologist in the United States. Bill Stevens was also mentored by Karen Burns, another well-known name in the field. According to Bill, Karen Burns inspired him to go into forensic studies and took his class to Guatemala for training, 
They worked on the recovery of remains left after the genocide of a Mayan population. From there, he got an internship with the Richland County Coroner's Office and was eventually hired, and he's been there 20 years. Like Major Bob Bromage, who we covered in Season 6, Deputy Coroner Bill Stevens is a man on a mission. He can name off their cold cases by heart, year of death, cause, location found, and he's the contact listed on their NamUs pages. He told us that the coroner, Gary Watts, encourages his staff to work cold cases, which has given him time to study unidentified persons whose remains date back as early as the 1980s. Bill is very familiar with the Richland County Jane Doe's case. He even keeps his own detailed timeline of the events preceding her death. He was able to walk us through her arrival at the county emergency room, which was just about a mile away from the Bull Street State Hospital. We asked Bill Stevens what specifically the Richland County Jane Doe had been doing prior to being taken in by police. She was walking around kind of preaching to people, and her claim was that she was the daughter of Oral Roberts, the evangelist. I would assume she she, uh, probably ran into law enforcement and was not making, you know, sense was um, her diagnosis upon admission is um, she refused a physical exam and um, uh, displayed some unclear thought process and uh, was labeled as undifferentiated schizophrenic. Statements to the staff that she made included that she wanted to go to South Dakota. She was a member of the Sioux tribe and again that she was Oral Roberts' daughter. Um, She was uh, described as psychotic and un- unable to care for herself due to her con- condition, um, having illusions of grandeur and not cooperating. So I think they were looking at her speech pattern, um, some hostility. So I suppose they decided pretty quickly that she needed to be um, transferred to the state hospital, which is just about a mile down the road in Columbia from Richland Hospital, our main one. There are a few other observations worth noting. In her file, it's recorded that the Richland County Jane Doe refused a physical exam. There's no mention why she refused it or her manner of refusal. And her statement that she was the daughter of Oral Roberts. For listeners who might not know, she'd named a famous evangelical preacher who rose to prominence in the latter half of the 20th century and who regularly appeared on TV. Over the next several hours, the Richland County Jane Doe was seen by a physician who made notes on her behavior and her responses. The doctor noted that she was, quote, hostile when pressed and was having delusional ideation. In Richland County's emergency room, medical providers also noted wandering thought processes, pressured speech patterns, and that she did not appear, quote, homicidal or suicidal but also noted there was a fear she might, quote, harm self or others. The decision was made to admit the Richland County Jane Doe to the South Carolina State Mental Hospital, and a flurry of paperwork followed. Her admittance was termed, quote, legally mandated or selected on her chart. We don't have any notations to indicate that she was administered medication while at the county emergency room. There are no noted signs of distress either, but She had refused a physical, so they would have had limited information. When she arrived at Bull Street, she was willing to undergo a physical exam, and a number of lab tests were ordered. They included blood tests, but the findings and what they might tell us about her aren't in the file. 
And according to Bill Stevens, if they're not with her medical records, there's no telling where they'd be now. The results would have come after she died. She'd barely been at Bull Street for 24 hours when the accident happened. But to get there, to how she died and why she's remained unidentified all these years, we have to talk about her stay at the South Carolina State Hospital on Bull Street. When the Richland County Jane Doe first arrived, her initial stop would have been at the Williams Building. If she had lived, she would have been there a week or more, being stabilized on medicine, receiving a diagnosis, and ultimately a more permanent housing assignment. At some points in the hospital's history, wards were actually separated by diagnosis when there were few categories and few treatments. But in 1982, with a smaller patient population and developments in medicine, that would have been unlikely. Patients would have been shifted to deal with dwindling population and fewer staff. We can't say for sure where she would have ended up, but all the intake happened in a single location. When journalist William Buckeye first explored the abandoned state hospital, he visited the Williams Building, and he'd later write about it and the people who worked and were observed there at length. After interviewing dozens of nurses, aides, doctors, social workers, and patients about life at Bull Street, William was able to walk us through what a patient would have experienced upon arrival at the campus. Patients would come in and they would always come into the Williams building. And the very first thing they did was they got their name and information. Then they took them over to the Burns uh, building, which was the basically the general hospital on the campus. And they would give them a physical examination there and they would check everything, uh, make sure they were okay physically. They would send them back to the Williams building and usually they would send them to a ward uh, for, the ne- for the night or for the next day or two until they got to see a treatment team. And the treatment team was basically the doctor, a social worker, a nurse, and maybe a psychologist. And uh, they would determine um, the best building for the patient to go and what their diagnosis probably was and that kind of thing. And then they would take it from there. But they would usually stay in the Williams building at least a few weeks um, as they kind of stabilized and as people basically determined where to put them. After her arrival at the Bull Street facility, the Richland County Jane Doe was described as quiet, cooperative, and willing to be introduced to staff and, quote, others on the ward. During intake, she'd added a few more details to her story that, quote, she came to the hospital because she's going to have some babies. She also repeated her stories about being a member of the Sioux tribe, who she said, quote, didn't want her and that she'd been staying with some Columbia locals who she didn't name, but that she'd been kicked out. At this point in the record, a name is recorded, Virginia Roberts, with a question mark following. Later, aides would note that she answered to the names Virginia and Jane. It's unclear how the surname Roberts entered the record, possibly because she'd stated she was the daughter of televangelist Oral Roberts. Most of the medical professionals we've spoken with for this episode guessed that the staff may have offered her a few names as possibilities, and she positively indicated for both Jane and Virginia. In the next 24 hours or so, it's noted that she continued to answer to both. 
At some point, she again gave her age as 38, and this time, the doctors recorded a birthday for her, January of 1944. It's unclear whether she offered this date or if they picked a random one that would have matched her stated age at admission. Of the details she offered, there's not much to sort through, like the people she said had, quote, put her out. No one came forward after her death to say that she'd stayed with them or that she'd had any relationship to them. There's also the reference to the, quote, Sioux tribe, and the phrasing itself is a clue. It's general versus a specific tribe within the Confederacy. And testing was done in the 1990s when the Richland County Jane Doe was exhumed. Then Dr. Ted Rathbun provided a number of observations concerning her likely ancestry, which he identified as European. It should be noted though that forensic anthropology's approach to ancestry study has evolved since the 1990s and the Richland County Jane Doe has not been re-examined. During intake, blood tests were ordered again, as was a chest x-ray and a urinalysis. Again, we don't have the results for these either. We do have notes, though, that she was given initial prescriptions for Halidol, which is an antipsychotic, Cogentin, and Dalmain. Based on what we read in pharmacological publications, Cogentin is prescribed for tremors and possibly for conditions like Parkinson's, but also tremors caused by certain medications, some of which are antipsychotics. Dalmain is a sedative that was prescribed for insomnia, among other things. We don't have any record of her actually taking these medications. At 9.45 on February 14th, the Richland County Jane Doe, quote, refused a bath and meds. At 10.10 p.m., she began to vomit. Specifically, her chart records her as, quote, vomiting large amounts of clear liquid. The duration, possible cause, or information they may have gleaned about what she had or hadn't ingested, none of that is available. And there are too many possibilities to even venture a guess. We do know, though, that she was administered a Thorazine injection that evening, and by 12 a.m., she was asleep in bed, with no other distress noted. When we spoke to William Buckite, who interviewed a number of hospital staff about medications, he told us that Thorazine treatment would have been routine in the early 1980s. Uh, that was very par for the course. Um, almost every patient was treated with Haldol or Thorazine. Most patients who came in there obviously didn't want to be there. They were very anxious and a lot of times combative. And Thorazine was pretty much par for the course when it came to giving something, giving them something to sedate them um, a little bit. And a lot of uh, a lot of patients would would kind of keep taking Thorazine, although in lower doses, throughout their stay. We wanted a better understanding of what the routines and procedures at the state hospital were like after patients had been through initial intake. And according to William Buckeye. The best person to speak to would be a nurse's aide or a mental health professional, as they were referred to at the hospital. Those providers generally had the most day-to-day contact with the patients, and Will Buckite suggested we speak to a woman named Wilhelmina Rivers. They would work with the administration a good bit. The mental health specialists, also known as the nurse's aides, would be with the patients 24-7. I mean, they would be at their side 
They would be helping them out. They would be breaking up fights. They would be taking them to their treatments, taking them to the showers, getting them dinner. And so she could tell me up to the second exactly how every day went. And um, she was by she was by far the best. And she did it for so many years. And another thing that made her so good was she worked in uh, she worked with uh, women for a long time, adult women. But then she worked with juveniles for a good little while as well. So she saw, um, a lot, first of all, lots of types of patients, but also um, several generations of patients. When we interviewed Wilhelmina Rivers this spring, she was able to give us insight into what her responsibilities would have been like in 1982. As a mental health specialist, how many patients like would you be responsible for filling out their charts? We had 63 patients, and it was uh, about 13 staff, uh, and we wrote on them every week. It, it, we wrote on them every week, and then we also had to write if anything we had to do for them, uh, special, uh, like daily, if they got into an altercation, we mm-hmm. had to write that up right then. We had to fill out all that, and if they had to go in seclusion, we had a log we had to fill out, and you had to watch them every 15 minutes through a door. It's got a glass called seclusion room. Right. And uh huh. And if I had to give them in, the, if we had to give them in the medication, we had to chart that right then on a folder. We had to keep up with all of that. We had about five patients. Okay. About five or six patients, and those was our patients. But we had, we was really had to watch them all. We watched right. them all together. That close monitoring is evident from the Richland County Jane Doe's chart, where mental health specialists and nurses tracked her on February 14th and 15th of 1983. It seems that she was in improved spirits by 6 a.m. the next day when she responded to staff questions, ate breakfast, and was willing to change into state-issued clothing. She allowed the staff to take her vital signs, too, and is described as, quote, quiet and cooperative. Anne seems to have spent her time walking around the ward, interacting with patients and caregivers. She also ate lunch, allowed for a regular vital check at 3.45 p.m., and had no other notations concerning behavior, mood, or physical issues. Then comes a gap in her chart. Between 3.46 and 7.29 p.m., there are no notations. And then at 7.30, there's this, quote, The patient fell out of bed and had a seizure, injured her head in a fall. And then, and this is important, we have information from a separate document that seems to provide additional context. On one of the post-mortem reports, which was prepared outside of the hospital, it's recorded that the Richland County Jane Doe had been placed in seclusion. Specifically, the information is that at the 7.30 check, she was found in an isolation room, quote, supine on the floor. That would imply that she would have been put in isolation sometime between 3.30 and 7.30. And without any supporting documentation, not that we could find, to explain why that would have happened. For weeks after receiving the file, we tried to sort this out. If the check at 345 had been fine, how had she ended up in isolation? Was she left there unattended? It was only when we connected with Wilhelmina Rivers, the retired mental health specialist, that we learned more about the isolation rooms at the state hospital and what that strange note 
not from her chart, but from the outside postmortem pathology report, might actually mean. Can you describe any any of the things that could have led to a visit to the isolation room? Oh, they uh, when they start, they they often fought. They would they'd be arguing with another patient, and then they start fighting, and we and we uh, separate them, and they have to go in the room. Or if they if they doing like if they beating their head, beating their head out there on the walls, and sometimes they start beating themselves, and then they'll put them in there. And so some, and the main reason they put them in there because they want somebody to have to be with them uh, uh, to watch them. And uh, then they, if they're trying to kill themselves, if they, if they try to kill themselves, then you have to take all their clothes and give them a paper gown, and they'll go in there and they put them in, in that seclusion, and ha- they have to be watched. Oh, and 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 and, and sometimes they put one to one. Sometimes you have to watch them the whole time. Now, they were 15 minutes, calling how bad the situation is. And the doctor write a special order for you to watch them, period. And you just have to stay to somebody have to stay to the women. But um, most of the time, they do, they were 15 minutes for that. So was there one mental health specialist assigned to all seclusion rooms, or was it each um, person following their specific patient would no, go and no, check no, on them? No, no, no. Uh-uh, you just one. One was a sign because we had different duties. Like, so if it, if it wasn't life-threatening or something, they, something something smaller, you might have one sign the way they can go watch both rooms, you know, because you can go just keep checking on them. But if it, if, any, if, it's, if it's anything dealing with you trying to harm yourself and uh, like that, then they're going to be checking one person going to that room. Most of the time it's one. When they put them in that room, they took that serious. When things would turn really chaotic, for example, if the patients were arguing with one another, how did you find time to chart? Would you have to just do that at the end of your shift sometimes if it was so crazy? No, you, no, you chart, you chart that, you chart that at the uh, after it happened. Once, once you, after you stop the fight mm-hmm. and do whatever you had to do, whatever kind of interventions and stuff you had to do, if they had to go in seclusion or whatever and all that, or you have to be given some medicine, you had to chart that soon as that, in, when that incident is over. So one of the things that we're wondering about in this specific woman's chart, so she was noted at around lunchtime as being, like, compliant. She was walking around the unit. She was interacting with other residents and staff, and she was, like, calm and cooperative. And the same sort of notation is made at like 3.30 in the afternoon. She's socializing. Mm-hmm. She's compliant. Um, and then at 7.30, the next notation says that at 7.30 p.m., she was found on the floor in an isolation room with a cut on her head. So in between 3.30 with her normal socializing compliant and 7.30, when she's found on the floor of the isolation room, there's no notes entered in there. And it sounds like that's not usual. Well, maybe she wasn't on uh, a log. They might have just had her uh, watch, had her in there just kind of like just keeping an eye on her. It might not have a real log going on. But she could have been in there, but the door wouldn't have been shut. Once you shut the door, you got to have a log. Mm-hmm. Now, if they got her in there just kind of observing her, no, no door shit or whatever, 
then uh, that's different. But once you shut that door, it should have been a law. You cannot go in there without a law. But they got a paper that's a law. It's, it's, it's called seclusion, observation law or seclusion law. You have to write just whatever they own. You have to write in so they make sure you is complying with it. You have to write every, you have to have your initials in that block every 15 minutes in, in a time frame. You have to offer them uh, certain things. Uh, you know, even with the shower, if you, you got to offer them that shower and try to, and if they start acting, want to hit you when you go in there to, and you're like, come on, I want you to go shower. They trying to hit you and all. You get back out that room and you shut that door again. But you got to go chart that, that you offered, patient still um, combated and whatever. You had to write that. After further discussion with Mrs. Rivers, it became clear that any patient entering isolation would have a second, separate medical log for the day, with frequent notations recording behavior, care, and length of time in seclusion. And Mrs. Rivers was also able to offer us some important information about the layout of the isolation rooms themselves and how the Richland County Jane Doe's medical event, falling out of bed during or after a seizure and receiving a cut on the head in the process, would have been difficult in that particular setting. According to Mrs. Rivers, there would have only been a mattress in the isolation room, not a bed frame that she could fall out of. All the beds with frames were located inside the patient's regular rooms. And finally, it's worth noting that the information about her fall and injury, that was on her regular patient's log. If it had happened in isolation, then that notation would have been recorded in an entirely separate place, and we wouldn't even know about it. One more important thing that Mrs. Rivers told us, in many of the wards, the isolation rooms also doubled as observation rooms, a place to watch patients who might be having a medical event like a seizure. It's an observation room, but it's used for seclusion, and they got seclusion room on the door. But it was used for different observations. But once she went, once she went in there, somebody would have been watching her. Once they got her up, they might have took her to the room, and and was waiting there till the doctor come and write, you know, what he need to do. And then when they had explained that series of events to the coroner, he may have misunderstood yeah. and written that. So, based on what Mrs. Rivers told us about the hospital's procedure. It seems likely that the seizure and subsequent fall occurred in the Richland County Jane Doe's room on the ward. And he did make that call to send her to Burns, the state hospital's emergency wing, for immediate treatment. It was there she'd spend the last hours of her life. Next time on The Fall Line, we cover the last day of the Richland County Jane Doe's life, what's been done to try and identify her, where her case stands now, and how her case might be aided by contemporary forensic science. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. Thanks also to Linda Doyle. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove, and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton, with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Our research assistants are Kim Fritz, Jess Watford, Lex Weathers, and Brian Warder. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. 
You can find Fall Line merchandise in the Exactly Right Potswag store. 